Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we are partying. It's my birthday. Anna's a birthday. Anna is yeah, a, birthday. a birthday. It's my birthday month, anyway. And as one might well do when confronted with a pandemic birthday, I've gone overboard. And Amber, as the best podcast host, co-host in the entire world... <laughs> Has very kindly promoted. indulged me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving. Goodbye. Yeah. So yeah, um, I may be indulging you today, but don't, don't worry. I'll have my birthday. So well, you were just born before me. Yeah, I was. That's all. So <laughs> listeners, if you listen to the show for a while, you might know <laughs> that as a kid. You I found out when I found really- out. <laughs> Well, there's a new one here for you. I was really into knights and swords and castles and that whole scene. I also went to medieval studies nerd summer camp. Did you know that? What? What (laughs) other secrets are you keeping from me? No, no. What? Yeah. What was this? Did you like, well, it was, did you have like a class on the the Voynich manuscript and a class on like No, but it was on Beowulf. It was, yeah, it was the Center for Talented Youth, oh, which is a name that's, yeah. That was a and medieval so studies thing? I did a couple of them. And so the first year I went, I think it was the summer between sixth and seventh grade, uh, it was medieval studies. Yeah. So we, we covered Beowulf. We covered, oh, I don't remember what else we covered. I also did Latin and neuroscience. So that's, that's, <laughs> those were two other summers. Other kids did went you, to normal camp. Wait. Wait. Like you have mm-hmm. one that was last, you did like Risticadio? Did you do like. No, the, I did. Um, the like immersion camp? No, what? No, I didn't Risticadio. No, <laughs> I I didn't summer anywhere. I, uh, I just went to camp and learned Latin. So I've got much more historical perspective now. I still really like these things, but I am aware of how they can be co-opted and, and <laughs> some of the. You know, again, in hindsight, a medieval castle-themed bat mitzvah was a hilariously poor choice. I given love that so much because it's just like such a like what a like historically bad time to like be having a bat mitzvah, like being a historically bad time to be a Jew. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just it was you know, is I love the things I love, and so. <laughs> In in a celebration of loving the things I love, this week's topic is Arthurian legend and some related themes. So, Amber, pretty sure I know the answer to this, but how much do you know about King Arthur, Camelot, and the Knights of the Round Table? So, um, I do know that, that King Arthur has a really great baking blog. He does. He has a, a really reliable flour brand. Yeah, employee-owned flour brand. Really into King Arthur's like workplace politics, I guess. Um, so as for like Camelot and the Knights of the Round Table, 
I know you know about Cam- the Pendragon cult. Like that's that we're not going to get into that today, but that is something different. Yeah, I know about that. Um, so if you were to ask me if King Arthur, Camelot, and the Knights of the Round Table were all the same thing, um, I would not know. So I don't okay. like, cause so I like, I guess they're related. I feel like there's, um, there was that, there was that book series. There was that, that book series that I remember when I was at gifted camp, somebody was reading in, um, our study hall and it was like very lurid to me. A like very oh. repressed young person, but I think it was, was about it like the, like Avalon. Was it feel like yeah it yeah it was like Mists was of ladies? Avalon and Mist- like yep, Morgana Lefay. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. I also know that that the like optical effect of like ships flipping upside down on the horizon. What? Um, if Whoa. you look out on the horizon oh, the and mists. you see like yeah. you you see it's a, a reflection of ships that are past yeah. the horizon that's named mm-hmm. after the Fata Morgana. I know that. That's a okay. Camelotti thing. Um I wasn't expecting to go there today. And so very little is, is it what I'm getting. Real? Did it happen? No. Okay. Short answer, no. And, Long and answer, let's people, have a podcast. Okay. So I'm I'm excited to tell you some stories. Great. I don't know anything. That's that's okay. Don't like castles, even though I gave you one for Christmas. <laughs> that's true. You did. Uh so far we've put together pretty much the entire outer moat and one very small wall. So listeners who aren't a part of our friendship. Um, in order to the dunk on us. me for having <laughs> in order to dunk on me for having a medieval castle themed bat mitzvah, Amber uh really nailed Christmas this year. Um I sent Anna a um three D puzzle of King Arthur's castle. And when I showed my mom this, when I showed my mom like what it was, I think her question was like, was that real? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Well, so is it, is it to scale? Is it historically accurate? Tell me. As far as I know. Mm. I've been in some castles and it, you know, no, they're like shaped to like King that. Arthur's castle. Well, I don't know what King Arthur's castle looks also, like. Also, okay, here we go. We're going to get into the real depths of things Amber like truly doesn't know. King Arthur wasn't one of the histories that Shakespeare wrote, right? Correct. Okay. Although it is related. Oh. Mm. Okay. Overall, listeners, this will be quite a shallow dive and a chance for me to very self-indulgently be excited about something I've enjoyed for a long time and apparently to teach my co-host all about this thing. I don't know anything about it. And there will be some actual anthropology in here, too, and some archaeology, but we'll get there. But first, let's talk about the legend's history and the story itself. And so I've pulled from various sources here, the first of which is the convo. Oh, the conversation. The convo. Oh, thanks. Mm. The Arthurian legend really kicked off in the early 12th century with Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, written in 1138, which purported to describe the entire history of Britain from day one until about the 7th century CE. There's a lot of debate about the origins of the story of King Arthur, and before our boy Jeff, there things are really very, very murky. There's some Welsh myths, and there's some Roman stuff, maybe, but nobody can agree on anything, and so that's why I've started here and not earlier. So in the history of the kings of Britain, Geoffrey of Monmouth begins with Brutus, grandson, or in some accounts, great-grandson, of the Trojan hero Aeneas, who had migrated supposedly, to the British Isles at the time when the Saxons conquered the Britons after dipping out of Troy. So Amber, 
since we're suddenly in your wheelhouse, can we get a brief summary of the story of the Aeneid? A little peek behind the curtain. Anna definitely told me that this part was coming. And I was like, yeah, sure, I can do that. And I super didn't look it up. So we're going to have a like real quick rough and dirty, uh, even though I have read, I've read the Aeneid in English. And in Latin. In English, even. <laughs> That's all I'm looking for. I just want, I just want <laughs> did, very did you rough. read it? <laughs> That's what you want. I read it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So also, this was the other thing was I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to like sound like, I mean, I did sound like maybe I sounded uninformed when I was like, was this in Shakespeare? But I was thinking that there was a thing, there was a thing about it possibly being Troy. But now that you told me about ever Jeffrey so Longworth. vaguely it's, Troy it's, adjacent because yes. this came up in one of my classes about Troy. I took a okay. class like on yeah. Troy, and okay. um, I was just like, "This is Jeffrey Mullen came up." Yeah. So um, the Aeneid, the Aeneid, written by Virgil, who was heard of him. a um, he was a pretty big deal in the literary scene um, at the beginning of the Roman Empire. So this is a great time to be writing stuff that like makes Rome sound great and is sort of like um we're gonna get um, a lot of stories that make x empire seem great yeah That's so it's very it's a much good, the name of the game it's a good here. way to t- to sort of um champion your heroes and sort of have mm-hmm. that that sort of like he is like the paragon so aeneas is sort of like he exhibits a lot of things that we see as like being like, like true roman virtues and like roman uber skills. roman i'm mi- i'm mixing my i know i know <laughs> the roman ubermensch um, Aeneas was a Trojan. So he was mm-hmm. in Troy when Troy mm-hmm. was sacked by the Achaeans. So by the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, uh, the Iliad is about the Trojan War. Yeah, that's the first part. The, the Odyssey is, um, Odysseus leaving. I forgot his name for a second. Is Odysseus <laughs> leaving, um, Troy. Leaving Troy and coming home. Or trying so, to get there anyway. Try, try, he eventually, he knows, I mean, spoilers no, I know. for Just, the Odyssey, yeah. he gets home. Meanwhile, on the other side of things. Yeah, so meanwhile, on the other side of things, um, Aeneas, with his um, his city having been sacked, you sort of see the other the, the other side of, of the issue. And it's sort of, he becomes um, something of a refugee from from Troy. And so uh, Virgil wanted to write something to rival the Homeric epics. And so like how, how else to do this, but like, you know, ape it. And so what yeah, happened was he wrote adventures. the Aeneid and the Aeneid follows Aeneas's travels um, from Troy, ultimately getting to um, Latinum, like ultimately getting to a point where he lands in the place that will become the city of Rome. And so there's lots of stuff, lots of stuff that happens in it. Mm -hmm. Um, He and so you end up um, getting like sort of a sense of political geography of Mm -hmm. of the period in which Virgil is writing this. And you also get a sense of what types of uh, kind of ideologies and values um, are part of of sort of that, like what might be considered like the golden age of the well, sort of like as the sun is rising on the <laughs> Roman Empire, I should say. Yeah. So he was sort of a contemporary of um, of Augustus. So there was Julius Caesar, who was the first emperor of Rome. Yep. And then the first person to inherit the mantle of emperor 
was Augustus. So this is like the time to be sort of identifying what your state is and what your empire is. Was that helpful? That was excellent. And so, (laughs) so Aeneas sort of founds Rome, question mark. And then a couple of generations after that, we've got Brutus who ends up in the British Isles. So Brutus is probably equally as not real. Well, that's the thing. So we have very controversial. I don't know how, I don't know why I just felt like I said like, you know, King David didn't exist or something. I don't know why I felt, is this my Italian roots? (laughs) Just being like. (gasps) Well, the important thing here is establishing a line to Mm -hmm. a golden hero like Aeneas, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea of establishing legitimacy, establishing this, you know, um, the Britain was colonized by the Romans. And so likely this has something to do with trying to establish continuity from a king of the Britons back through the Roman line, right? So the the foundational Roman line um, and relating those two things together. So after Brutus, we get a lot of son ofs, don't really, Mm -hmm. don't really matter here until we eventually get to Uther Pendragon, king of all the Britons and Arthur's father. And so side note here, it's really meaningful that this pedigree continues backwards to Aeneas, founder of the Roman Empire, because this pedigree carries on in literature so that the descendants of this line are successive kings of Britain, which leads down to the time of King Arthur and eventually through a Welsh line to Henry VII, notable real historical figure making all successive monarchs after Henry VII Brutus's descendants, which definitely has nothing to do with legitimizing a ruling family. Nope, definitely not. So Hmm. Arthur's birth was supposedly foretold in a prophecy and orchestrated by the wizard Merlin, whom we'll talk a little bit about later on, but... Wait, we got wizards? You waited for like 14 minutes to tell me about wizards? I already told you King Arthur's not real. He's got a best friend wizard. This is, this is, we are in, well, they were, mm, it wasn't best friends. It was sort of a mentor, mentee, conflicted relationship. Depends on which version of the mythology you look at. But yeah, we're in a time of magic and mysticism. If I didn't make that clear. The misty ages when, when magic was real. So Merlin, the story mainly comes from two historical sources, real historical sources, the prose Merlin, which was written in 1227, and Le Morte d'Arthur, which is written in 1469, the letter written by Sir Thomas Mallory, and maybe one of the more famous accounts of King Arthur's life, and as you can maybe tell by the title, his death. As the story goes of Arthur's conception and birth. Gorlois, or possibly Gorlois, because he's the Duke of Cornwall, and I don't know how French we are at this point. The Duke Gorlois. of Cornwall. Gorlois, I, I know. Oof. It's not the most mellifluous name. The Yes. And like Uther and Arthur Uther. aren't the same name? They're not the same name. No, they okay. are very related, but no. Uh, so the Duke of Cornwall brings his wife, Igraine, to a victory celebration hosted by King Uther. Uther falls in love with Igraine and Igraine's husband, Gorlois, Gorlois, Gorlois. Anyway, he's, he's angry about this because King Uther is macking on his lady. And so he leaves, causing a rift between him and Uther, who had previously been allies. 
So the two regions eventually go to war, and during the conflict, Uther contacts Merlin. With the help of Merlin's magic, Uther transforms to look like Gorlois. Gorloi. Uther then seduces Igraine under this guise, and she becomes pregnant. And Merlin's end of the deal is that he will get the child, who will one day become King Arthur. And meanwhile, Igraine's actual husband dies in battle. And so when the baby is born, Igraine has no choice but to give the baby to Merlin because she was a woman and had no agency. Merlin stashed the baby Arthur with a country knight because with the death of, of Gorlois, um, there was a lot of conflict in the region, a lot of instability. And so he stashes baby Arthur with a country knight way out in the sticks and nobody what, knew who he really was. What's a country knight? Be like, I'm a simple country knight. Yeah, pretty much. It's so you had um country knight. got city knight, country knight. City mouse country. Yeah, uh, so it's basically I mean he had an estate and it was way out in the country. So knights were granted parcels of land by the king whom they served oh, okay. and this particular knight just kind of lived way out in the sticks. Okay. Uh, Sir Kay was, nope, that's wrong. Sir, what was his name? Oh no, Sir Kay was his son. Every fan of Arthurian legend is yelling at their podcatcher right now. Sir Ector. Sir Ector? Yeah, his name is Sir Ector, as in like Hector, but it doesn't have the H. His name is Sir Ector. He's a country knight. And he's very like, I mean, as you might expect a country knight to be in the story, he's very provincial. His son, Sir Kay, is definitely a stone cold dum-dum. So. Yeah, cool. Cool. Read the the Once in Future. No, not the Once in Future King, because that one's depressing. But the Sword in the Stone is maybe my favorite book from childhood. Um, it means a lot to me. So, when King Uther died, there was still a lot of regional conflict, and therefore a lot of fighting over who should be the next king, as happens when sort of a dynasty wobbles. Merlin, classic problem solving, used his magic to set a sword in a stone. Written on the sword in letters of gold were the words. Whoso pulleth out the sword of this stone is the rightwise born king of all England. And so, of course, all the contenders for the throne took their turn at trying to draw the sword from the stone, but none could succeed because they were not the mandated king and the rightful heir of Uther Pendragon. I have another question. Yes. What is England at this time? Is it England as we know it? Is it just England? It's is not it? England as we know it so much. It is a series of kind of disjointed kingdoms and um, territories in the British Isles. But there's a lot going on. And also there's no there's a, a relative sense of when this is happening, about 500 CE, but no clear historical sense because, again, not a real king. So it's sort of sort of misty in the mists of time this is happening. Okay. Yeah. You're not going to get any clear answers from me in this episode, pretty much, because this is all sort of... In legend. And like in the flat past. Yeah. It's very much in the flat past of stories. So fast forward several years and as a young squire, Arthur, who was, so a squire is basically a knight's personal assistant. He's the one who helps him get into his armor. He's, he's the PA. one who does, he's a PA. He, uh, he does, he runs errands for him. He, he basically serves the knight and it's, it's part of his, mm-hmm. And it's part of his apprenticeship in in the eventual journey to becoming a knight himself. And so as a young squire, Arthur, totally by chance, uh, is at a tournament with Sir Ector and Sir Kay. And Sir Kay, his stepbrother, breaks his sword. And so Arthur's like, ah, got to find a new sword. Here's one sticking out of a rock. I'll use this. Draws the sword from the stone. And everyone went, well, I guess he's the king. 
And so Arthur became the next anointed king of all the Britons. And so also to clarify, this sword is not Excalibur. That came later. The sword in the stone and Excalibur are two different swords. Was that sword in a lake? It was. With a lady? Lady had it? Lady of the lake. Oh, nice. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Nailed it. So, Amber, will you wrap up the rest of the story for us? Yes, I will definitely read the script you wrote for me because Uh, I don't know anything about this. That's fine. Um, Thank you. So, as I understand it, Arthur (laughs) gathered knights around him and fought back against the Saxons, who, since the Romans left Britain, were slowly but surely taking the country over. After many great battles and a huge victory at Mount Baden, Baden, at Mount Baden, the Saxons' advance was halted. Arthur's base was at a, at a place called Camelot. Here he built a strong castle. His knights met at a round table. They carried out acts of chivalry, such as rescuing damsels in distress, and they fought against strange beasts. Like Beowulf? No, Beowulf, Beowulf was Danish. Okay. Yeah. See? I went to high school. Different fighty-fighty okay. sword king. Yeah. Okay. They also searched for the Holy Grail, which was believed to have had the power to cure all Ill- ills. Like... Also cure all eels. Any sick eels. <laughs> Boop. Holy I grail. Mean, they, they, they're having some eel problems right now over there. That's true. Among the Britons. Um, but the Holy Grail is the cup that Jesus drank out of at so, the Last Supper. Y- that's what it's often thought to be. I read and heard something <laughs> recently that the grail is actually more more like a tray. It's like something. But it's something that Jesus. Oh, the Holy Grail. <laughs> this is my new like restaurant concept so the holy i mean yeah the holy grail is an item of tableware with which jesus interacted yes but it's that it's like the jesusy one it's the jesusy one absolutely and they and they looked for that in britain Mm -hmm. did jesus go to britain no but jesus's various artifacts a lot of them supposedly ended up in Great Britain thanks to the Knights Templar. Oh, good grief. Okay. Yeah, we're not going to get into the Knights Templar today. That is a whole different barrel of knights. Eels. Eels. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Well, so setting aside the Holy Grail for now. Yep. Holy Grail. Under the guidance of Merlin, Arthur obtained a magical sword from the Lady of the Lake. The sword was called Excalibur, and with this weapon, he vanquished many foes. Queen, yeah, we're really glossing over most of this story. It's fine. Queen Guinevere, Gwen, Gwyneth? Is it? What do you mean? Is it It's Gwyneth? related. It's a Welsh name, like, yeah. like so Gwyneth. It's, it's, you often see it spelled Gwynhyfar, like G-W-Y-N-H-Y-F-A-R. Okay. okay. It's, it's Welsh, as is Gwyneth. Okay. Oh, so it's not the same same. Okay. Uther, Arthur, Gwyneth. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing Welsh. <laughs> So Queen Guinevere uh, was Arthur's wife, and as all women before the mid-70s, I guess, uh, she had no interiority nope. <laughs> or or personality other than being beautiful. Yep. Uh, so she, with her with her ladiness, uh, she mm-hmm. brought some romance to the story, specifically romance with Arthur's right-hand knight, Sir Lancelot. Uh, while his equally beautiful half-sister, Morgan Le Fay, added a dark side. I do remember, again, once again, no child left behind here. I do remember learning about early European history in 10th grade 
and we watched mm-hmm. the movie with Richard Gere and Sean Connery and uh, and a lady. Was I thought you were going to say you watched. Uh, okay, okay. I thought you were going to say you watched the movie. Um, what is it called? I think it's just called Excalibur. Uh, that's not for *Death the Great Clouds*. <laughs> <laughs> It's not for anyone. It's a bad, bad movie. Um, yeah, so I... Okay. Um, so, unfortunately, as peace settled over the country, things turned sour within the court of Camelot, and civil war broke out. In a final battle, both Arthur and Mordred, Arthur's traitorous nephew, although in some stories he's Arthur's child with Morgan Le Fay, sister, but they didn't yep. know each other or something. Wasn't it something like uh, there's they were like, some in some stories they do some stories they don't and were tricked into having a child together. Very sort of Oedipus ish, but not or really. It could have been it could have been genetic sexual attraction. This does happen. We've talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to um, Dirt After Dark on Patreon uh, to learn more about that. And so they were both mortally wounded. So yeah. Mordred, say more way. Arthur was set upon a boat and floated down the river to an isle of Avalon. Here, his wounds were treated by three mysterious maidens, none of whom were his sisters. Do you find other Unclear. sisters? Unclear. Okay. I don't know. Oh, again, again. They're women. They're not people. Okay. Yeah. They're yeah. not characters. They're just women. Mysterious um, maidens. So his body was never found. And many say he rests under a hill with all his knights ready to ride forth and save the country. Again. Doo-doo. Yeah. So you're not you all can... his knights, because some of them seem to done him dirty. Well, the good ones, I guess. His faves. I don't know. But you can see how stories like this, especially the various permutations of these stories, can capture the imagination and also how they can be co-opted in various ways, some less desirable than others. So listeners, if you'd like to learn and think more about this, we'll have a link in the show notes to a thesis by Elizabeth Proctor on Digital Commons titled The Legendary King, How the Figure of King Arthur Shaped a National Identity and the Field of Archaeology in Britain. Wow. Uh, you might also be able to easily imagine how archaeologists might get involved with looking for evidence of Arthur Camelot and a real figure to tie to these legends. I can. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about one example here, but we'll also have a link to a 2011 lecture series from the Penn Museum called Great Riddles in Archaeology, King Arthur, Camelot, and the Quest for a Holy Grail. Yeah, it's like a, uh, an hour and a half video fine. Looks interesting. I didn't have time to watch it yet, but it's on my list. But for now, here's a science alert. It's alert. Uh, account from 2016 of a retired professor and expert in Arthurian literature, Peter Field's theories on the location of Camelot. You may be wondering why since 2016 we haven't heard of Camelot being uncovered. Here's why. <laughs> so Field believes that Camelot used to stand at the site of an ancient Roman fort called Camelodunum. Yep, Camelodunum. <laughs> Camelodunum in Slack, West Yorkshire, <laughs> in the UK. I, is it, I don't know. It's Slack, so maybe it's Slaw. No, I think it's Slack. Is it Slack? Is it Slack? I th- okay. I think it's pronounced Slack, like that app that you and I love so much. <laughs> <sighs> if you want to never hear from me, hit me up on Slack. <laughs> Same. Oh. <laughs> 
Um, and that would have been sorry, Chris, director of the APN, <laughs> who exclusively messages us on Slack. We try, we try um, so hard. So that would have been an ideal spot in 500 CE when King Arthur is argued to have existed um, as a real life military expert tasked with defending Britain from invaders. Over the years, well-recognized linguistic processes would have reduced Camelodunum to Camelot. <laughs> you can see why. <laughs> though almost forgotten and insignificant today, and even though it was abandoned and dilapidated by the relevant time of King Arthur around 500 CE, which... <laughs> Um, Professor Field argues that this site at Slack would have been considered a strategic stronghold. At that time, Celtic-speaking Britons, who could have been led by King Arthur, held the north and the west coast against the invading Anglo-Saxons. Yeah, so there's the Celtic people who are the Britons. The Mm Anglo-Saxons are a different group. The Anglo-Saxons eventually invade and take over. Uh, okay, so the the Angles and the Saxons, not same, same, though. Oh, I'm thinking of the Normans and the Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons is one is one thing, as far yeah. as I know. The Anglo-Saxons thing. Yeah. Normans thing. Yeah, the Normans invaded in, ten, in the, in the uh, 11th century. Okay. And they conquered the Saxons at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's way later. That's 500 years from now. Well, it doesn't seem to matter. Doesn't. Go for it. Okay. So, does archaeology back up Field's hypothesis? Uh, No, not really. Camelodunum was a a Celtic kingdom, and and then there was definitely a big Roman presence there. So, it was the capital of Roman Britain after the Romans invaded in 43 CE. So, there were some massive fortifications. Uh, But those don't really match the timeline. So, there's a castle made from stone quarried from Roman ruins. um, But... That was built by the Normans in the 11th century um, when Amber has heard of stuff happening and also 500 years after Arthur would have lived. But there is at least one archaeological site that dates to the right time period and, at least in the popular press, is touted as a possible Camelot. Tintagel. 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 Tintagel Castle. Tintagel Castle. Tintagel. It could be Tintagel. I don't think it is. Tintagel. Okay. So this is another science alert released from 2016. Science. British archaeologists have reported the discovery of massive walls that appear to be part of a Dark Ages palace complex that existed around the same time and place as King Arthur's birthplace in the famous legend of Camelot. Camelot. (laughs) The walls located in the English village of Tintagel. Yeah, Tintagel. In southwest Cornwall, enclose a number of buildings that would have formed the royal center of the kingdom of Dumnonia yeah. in the 5th and 6th century CE. So experts suggest. Dumnonia would have been the Celtic kingdom. The dozen or so buried buildings discovered inside the one meter thick masonry walls contained hundreds of fine glass fragments from medieval France and pottery shards from the late Roman amphorae and Phocaean red slip wear thought to have been thought to have carried wine from modern day Turkey and olive oil from Northern Africa. The exotic origins of these artifacts suggest that whoever was living inside this building complex would have been likely very wealthy and probably royalty. Probably. 
One of the team, Wynne Scutt from English Heritage, told BBC News, quote, It isn't just a trading center to move olive oil around. They're actually indulging in it. They're feasting here. End quote. So the elite probably lived here. But why do people think it could be King Arthur? <laughs> Spoiler. Because they really want it to be King Arthur. Because <laughs> only like there was only one dude back yeah. then. Yeah. It's like Avi, Obs. Yep. Come on. Well, first things first, the legend of King Arthur is exactly that, a legend. Despite the fact that the mythological figure has been wildly popular for centuries, nobody talked to me. <laughs> no one's actually wildly been able to prove... in different circles. Yeah. <laughs> no one's actually been able to prove he existed. But what makes Arthur so intriguing is the way we, could, we can tie certain historical places and events to him. If we look at the original source of the Arthur legend, the Arthur... <laughs> the Arthur of the legend. <laughs> oh. um, that would be an autobiography. It would. <laughs> the author points to a fortress at the same site as the recently unearthed palace complex as being Arthur's birthplace. In Geoffrey of Monmouth's account, completed <laughs> around 1136, King Arthur was conceived in the 5th century in a fortress at Tintagel, Tintagel, Tentacle. Tentacle. That had fallen into ruin by Jeffrey's time. The ruins of a castle that was completed about a century after Jeffrey lived still stand near the dig site where the Dark Ages buildings were discovered. Jeffrey's account is also the origin of famous details of Arthur's life, including his friendship with the wizard Merlin and when he pulled a sword from a stone. To make things even more interesting, a slate engraved with Artonu. Yeah, Ar no, yeah, Artugnu, basically. Artugnu. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Artugnu, uh, Latin for the English name Arthnu, was uncovered at the site back in 1998. So the myth of King Arthur states that the fifth, that during the fifth or sixth century, he managed to unite the Britons so they could fight off the invading Anglo-Saxons and bring about the peaceful age of Camelot. But it only it like ended like during his lifetime. There, there were sort of halcyon days. So he successfully defeated and, and drove back the Anglo-Saxons. And there was a sort of a golden period of peace in Camelot where he was reigning from Camelot and sending his knights off on various quests. And then gradually, maybe after a decade or so, um, sort of internal fighting caused the collapse of, of Camelot. Wow. Okay. Well, historians generally agree that these events did actually happen. But whether or not a king named Arthur orchestrated them has yet to be proven. Although the legend states that he won some 12 battles against the Anglo-Saxons, his name does not appear anywhere in the only surviving contemporary history of the invasion. You'd think and he'd show up. You'd, you'd think he would. Mm. The excavation of Tintagel. Rhymes with Tinkerbell. Upon which stands a medieval... Tintagel. Tinkerbell. Is that helpful? Tintagel. I do believe in castles. I do. I do. Upon which still stands a medieval castle that was built almost 100 years after the recently uncovered fortress will continue. And the results of the excavation will be published in the coming years. Um, so maybe we'll find something concrete to tie it to the Arthur story. Uh, but until then, the legend remains a legend. Let's lay that legend to rest for now. Have a quick little ad break and come back to talk about some, well... Uh, let's call them legacies of Arthurian legend. 
It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. And Amber, you know what people seem to like even more than knights and swords and castles? They like to sit in castle-themed restaurants, eat chicken with their hands, and watch a jousting match. In other words, people love medieval times. Have you done this before? Have you gone to medieval times? I have not. I have not. I don't think I would enjoy it. But I, I think it's really interesting that it exists. And so I, in, in kind of an exercise in why do I love this thing that I love so much, I sort of wanted to look at this as a, as a definite offspring of, of the legend of King Arthur and sort of the associated sort of medieval vibe that people seem to really resonate with. Like Camelot and Arthur is considered medieval? No, no, no. The, the legend informs a lot of things that happen in the Middle Ages. So Arthur is, is 500 CE. The Middle Ages right. are between the 10 hundreds, 11th century yeah. and, and the 15th yeah. century. So that's sort of right the border of the Renaissance. But the idea, so King Arthur and his knights sort of had this sense of chivalry and um, uh, great deeds and quests and sort of nobility of spirit that um, along with, you know, there's, there's a lot of religious, religious things that are sort of mushed into the, into the Arthurian legend. Arthur is sort of co-opted into being a knight of God. And things like that, but that he mm. sort of came before conversion to Christianity, so it's all murky. But right, okay, okay. But the sort of um, ethos of King Arthur and his knights very much translates into sort of medieval codes of morality and chivalry and things like that. So, so like the like the flat the flat medieval past in which like Game of Thrones happened, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, is is very much informed by Arthurian legend. Yeah. Okay. So for listeners who are unfamiliar, Medieval Times Dinner and Tournament is a family dinner theater featuring staged medieval style games, sword fighting and jousting. So it's all very sort of um, scripted. There are 10 locations. There are nine in the U.S. built as replica 11th century castles. The 10th in Toronto or Ontario, Canada, is located inside the CNE government building. Shows are performed by a cast of about 75 actors and 20 horses in each location. The first drawbridge, oh. just like the, the logistics of this, are 
incredible. The first drawbridge was lowered at a $3.8 million castle 10 minutes from Walt Disney World near Orlando in 1983. And that's a big part of it. Most of these are located near big sort of family vacation destinations, which seems Mm -hmm. to be part of the key to their success. The business's success is remarkable given dinner theaters retreat from the ranks of hip entertainment since the 1970s. The supper club heyday of the mid-20th century yielded turf to comedy clubs and television, which picked up a slicker form of onstage sketches, while interactive murder mystery shows set sail for resorts and cruises. Medieval. Oh, I cannot think of anything more obnoxious than a murder mystery show on a cruise. You're like trapping me on a boat with people pretending that somebody's dead. Oh, man. No one's asking you to go on that vacation. No, I know. No, and have have a great time. And if, like, you want to, like... If that's your thing. Be one of the people doing this, that's awesome. But, like... Not for you. Also not for me. I clenched at the very thought of that. Every one of your sphincters just (laughs) slams shut. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Medieval Times has staged the same show for nearly the past five years. This is coming from as of 2016. With only three different performances in the last 12. So you don't want improvisation when you've got swords and horses. It's camp and melodrama with perfectionist horseplay. And it's persevered. It emerged originally on the Spanish island of Mallorca when Jose Montaner, an entrepreneur of noble birth, transformed his estate into a medieval dinner theater venue in the 60s. A lot of this comes out of the 60s in a kind of a surprising um, little counterculture move, which um, we're going to talk about in a little bit. I I did that for you. Among the original investors in the privately held firm was the Count of Paralada, who continues to hold a stake and whose royal roots serve as inspiration for the show's setting. Montaner's son Perico is now president and CEO at company headquarters in Irving, Texas. So here's here's a little bit of a taste of sort of the, the business logistics of this. The largest overhead cost is staff with more than 200 full and part-time employees at the Toronto location alone and 1,600 plus in North America. Thousands of polyester frocks, smocks, capes, and corsets go through jumbo washing machines in the venue's basements each week. Horses are overhead number two, all 24 of them. Quarter horses, Frisian geldings, and Andalusian stallions. Bred on the company's ranch in North Texas, the horses are worth anywhere from $5,000 to $50,000 each. Beyond the deals, gift shop miscellanea, mass-produced meals, and top 40 advertising, more ethereal forces spur the medieval times chariot to success. The enterprise taps into what French philosopher Roland Barthes called the great spectacle of suffering, defeat, and justice, a well that never runs dry. So it's a a pageant of these themes that just seem to fit really well into the, the... uh, the sort of milieu of knights and fighting and, and damsels in distress. It's like the classic movie plot, damsel in distress rescued by Prince Charming on a horse who defeats the evil villain and you get to eat chicken with your hands while you watch it. I can see why people love it. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Some anthropology for us. Observation of people doing doing things that make us go as you did. Hmm. Yeah. No, just like behaviors. Yeah. Behaviors. Interesting. Okay. So, listeners, given the turns this episode has taken, you may be able to guess where we're going next as a legacy of Arthurian legend and a thing Anna loves and a thing I have not experienced. Let's go to the Renaissance Fair. Hail and well met. Were, were there dungeons and or dragons in Renaissance Fair? Isn't that what that's from? Is that is hail and well met from not from Dungeons and Dragons? It's, it's from often, the actual past. It, well, yes. 
It's from like reconstructions of the past in in movies. But yeah, it comes from okay. I think it just comes from this nerddom. Okay. Yeah, which okay, so overlaps heavily with Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, things I love. We're pulling here from an article on Slate.com from 2013, which discusses a book by Rachel Lee Rubin titled Well Met, Renaissance Fairs and the American Counterculture. When you visit a Renaissance fair, people like to tell you how long they've been coming, how many fairs and festivals they visit in a year, what their job was when they worked here, and what... Uh, what the after parties are like. Nobody likes, nobody says the words authentic, historical, or despite the loot and tower processions led by jesters, medieval. Well, put a pin in that, because some people really are more concerned with the historical inaccuracies of this extremely made-up festival. <laughs> On my visit one recent October Saturday to King Richard's Fair, I drank zero mead, bust zero winches, donned zero cod pieces, waved zero swords in the air. About all I managed in the way of participation was one pillow fight, sorry, duel, on a wooden log. My loss, to an anthropologist I know, she was there dressed as a wood fairy, reminded me of Daffy Duck going up against Porky Pig in Robin Hood Daffy. It was humiliating, sure, but a bit exciting as well. So what else do you love, Anna? I love Looney Tunes. Robin Hood? Mm-hmm. Not 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 one of the knights of the round table super not he came okay. later one of the earliest fair mottos i learned in rachel Re rubin's careful and informative and thought-provoking well met renaissance fairs in the american counterculture was quote all the fairs a stage end quote um that does not mean the fair is filled like colonial williamsburg with stages filled with actors ready to educate you about the distant past something else that makes me uncomfortable but again, have great, have a great time. Um, it means that at the fair, everyone is always on stage, including you. So you'd better be prepared to act, which doesn't mean to recite lines someone else wrote for you, but to start performing whatever role you've come prepared or half prepared to play. I will say, though, you can just go to a Renaissance fair and walk around and enjoy it. You're not going to be harassed into doing anything, but it um, is very much a performative it- space. That would make it very different than the Dickens Fair. Oh, no. Where I, I was harassed by the old lady from Nicholas Nickleby. Okay. I don't know. I'm sure her name was like Mother Crouch or something. I have no idea, but I just wanted to eat my fish and chips in peace. And I like freaked out at her. <laughs> I'm sorry. It shouldn't have been like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ren Fair began 50 years ago in drama teacher Phyllis Patterson's backyard outside Los Angeles. A goofy countercultural compliment to the English folk music festival that spawned Fairport Convention and such prog rock heroes as Jethro Tull. Mm-hmm. Well Met is packed with welcome detours into fascinating historical byways. I loved learning that the Los Angeles Free Press, the original radical 60s underground newspaper, started as the Fair Free Press, distributed by Art Kunkin in a Robin Hood outfit. <laughs> oh, Los Angeles. There's very little in a Renaissance fair that is historically plausible or authentic, right down to the name, which never concealed the fair's medieval inspiration. Just how Renaissance is a mud pit, exactly. There's a lot of mud pit wrestling at Renaissance fairs. What? Like like sexy wrestling? No, like like mud shows. So it's like a, a very body show with jokes where the players, it doesn't usually involve the audience unless a member, an audience member of like volunteers, but it, it's usually just like a lot of falling into mud pits and wrestling and telling lewd jokes, you know? Hey. Hey. Again. Mm-hmm. Have a great time. 
Um, but maybe it's that very indifference to history that makes the place enticing. It doesn't want to educate you. First, the first problem that I have. It wants to suck you in and make you act like someone else for a few hours. Oh, I don't want that at all. <laughs> that has the somewhat paradoxical effect of making a fair surprisingly like the bumpy, embarrassing, role-reversing bodiness that played, if I have my history right, such a huge part in medieval carnivals. The Renaissance Fair's resistance to educating you becomes almost accidentally educational. So the instant the Renaissance Fair started trying to be accurate instead of ridiculous, it would stop being both. Long live the pillow duel. Yeah, so I too have been to King Richard's Fair. I went as a kid with my mom, God bless her, and it was the best. Like as a kid who was already interested in this stuff to like be in this huge venue full of very schlocky uh, you know, two-dimensional castles and backgrounds and, and people dressed up as knights and fire-breathing performers and jugglers and, you know, were just they dragons? It, it, no, they were, they were like, you know, like fire breathers, like, like circus performer fire breathers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And people, yeah. And so like, I went to the archery booth and I shot arrows and I got this like necklace that had a little me- metal dragon claw clutching a clear marble. And it was just the coolest time. Mostly. I just want to say thanks mom for that's so sweet for coming along to that. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. I, I was taken to a, um, something of a fair mm-hmm. once with my dad. Um, it was about like fossils. Oh, fossil fair. That's fun. So it was just like I a like bunch. That. It was a bunch of like pedants. With things in small cases, and it was great. Yeah, that's what I want. I want no. I want people only trying to educate you. Like you want not a cabinet inter- want of curiosities. Have, don't have fun. Led by Stop professors. Okay, <laughs> that's that's what that's, that's what, what that I'll was. do for and your was, birthday. Was, yeah. I'll just Tell pedant at you. Okay. Yeah. Mm, so there are lots of reasons people love Renaissance fairs, but a big part of it is linked with why I think I love the world of Arthurian legend so much. So this is from a 2019 Bloomberg.com article. Which also mentions Rachel Lee Rubin's book, Well Met, etc., etc. So how exactly did these ersatz medieval bacchanals obtain such a grip on the American imagination? Scholar Rachel Lee Rubin credits Phyllis Patterson, an L.A. history and theater teacher, who entertained her students with a backyard Commedia dell'arte party with kicking off the craze and unintentionally triggering the 1960s itself. So Commedia dell'arte is a specific, <laughs> yeah, is a specific style of um, comedy and acting that, that originated in Italy. And there are very specific characters. So there's a harlequin, there's like a maid, there's a lover, there's an old man. And it's, so it's very, um, well, there's, there's roles. With her husband, Ron, Patterson organized a Renaissance Pleasure Fair in 1963, a kind of early early wimpled (laughs) Woodstock, as the New York Times called it. The Pleasure Fair became an annual event spreading to Northern California and beyond. The Rabelaisian atmosphere of these body carnivals touched a nerve in anxious Cold War America. Not long afterward, hippies started turning up in dandyish frocks. Rock bands began to pillage medieval history, and the rest is history. You can probably trace a line from the Patterson's backyard to Led Zeppelin IV to Burning Man. The reality-bending appeal of these early SoCal gatherings, which established the interactive no-spectators vibe that carries on in today's variants, remains a big part of the festival formula. And so um, a scholar of this 
sort of era and this phenomenon says, quote, here was something you could participate in that was a little wild, but it's also safe. It's a form of shared fantasy. And so that's, I think that's what I really like is this, it's total escapism. It's a place to go that exists in my head. And then there's also all these people who also have a similar place in their head and they kind of come together and coexist in this shared play space. And you can either you know, participate in it as much as you want. You can kind of lose yourself in a role or you can just observe, which is what I prefer. And so it all kind of comes from this collection of myths that coalesced into Arthurian legend. And that legend has inspired so much of fantasy as a genre. And um, the fact that it's based on history-ish that occurred 1500 years ago makes it a space that's far enough removed from real life and real people problems that it feels comfortable to play in. And so I think, you know, in kind of writing the script, I was able to sort of examine, but not too deep, sort of my, because I don't, I didn't want to like veer into white nationalist territory. That's, I don't want to do that, but save that for my birthday. <laughs> that's for your birthday. Up on the we'll trauma llama. Okay. No, we'll talk about it on my birthday. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I just, um, I sort of now have a better grasp on and a new appreciation of the stuff that I love. This is Chris Webster at the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Thank you, Amber, for indulging me and letting me kind of go on. And then as a final treat for you, just for fun, because it's my birthday uh, and inspired by a recent episode of a podcast I enjoy, Beach Too Sandy, Water Too Wet, hat tip to them because they recently did a whole episode of these. Here are two reviews of Renaissance Fair, specifically King Richard's Fair, from people who didn't have as much fun there as I did. So here's a three-star review from Yelp. And so remember that pin I asked you to put in people who were disturbed by historical inaccuracy? Yep. <clears throat> Are you reading my Yelp reviews? <laughs> yeah, specifically yours. Three stars. Hmm. Where to begin? I've attended medieval slash renaissance fairs in Europe that were akin to living history experiences. They were put together with... Mm, I have too, sir. I had more fun than you. <laughs> They were put together with authenticity in mind, beg to differ, offering glimpses of what life was like centuries ago, given atten giving attendees little flashes of the experience of time travel. Well, you know what? Mm -hmm. King Richard's Fair ain't that. Is it fun? Oh. Sure. But if you go expecting authenticity, you'll be disappointed. <laughs> 
So don't. King Richard's Fair is a pastiche of pseudo-medieval Renaissance cliché and caricature. You'll see the king and members of his entourage do a folie bergère kickdance. You'll see a knight from the 14th century chatting with the fictitious 18th century pirate Jack Sparrow. You'll see monks watching a belly dancer act in the town square, right as if belly dancing was a community activity in Europe several centuries ago. You'll see a Viking in bogus horned helmet, which they never wore, yeah, dancing with a lady in day-glow pink gone with the wind dress. It's nuts. The Middle Ages or Renaissance as they never were, which is a shame, as this fair could be more. Okay, well, obviously I didn't write this one because I didn't complain about like how many like Doctors Who there were. No. No, you're, I, uh, I left yours out. And then finally, from Google reviews, one star. It's, <laughs> it smells like an ant farm there. Never again. <laughs> uh, happy birthday to me. <laughs> It's just, just an excuse to read that to you. That's beautiful. Yeah. And that is accurate. Like wood chip and uh, dirt. Uh, kind of a, there's kind of a tang to it. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for this episode, listeners. Thank you so much for coming along with me. And Amber, thank you for sitting through this. I hope you had fun learning about King Arthur. And I hope you recover from this laughing chag and i also hope that you'll come with me to a renaissance fair someday i promise i won't make you but oh we'll see <laughs> listeners i'm still crying <laughs> was a good one uh, gotcha <laughs> so in the meantime thank you for listening everybody and we'll be back in your ears next week with a new episode which you can <laughs> Which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen. Whatever ant farm you live in. You can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, Amber's dying. We're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. You want me to finish up so you can breathe? And all of that, along with merch, our syllabus for teachers, our back catalog, and so much more is over at our website on thedirtpod.com. Thanks, everybody. Amber's got to go breathe now. Happy birthday, Anna. Thanks. We love you, everybody. Goodbye. (laughs) This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.